Well, it's been an incredible weekend already here at Community of Faith. And as you can see, the students um, have got some energy this morning, which is already kind of a miracle because I know that, I know that the um, quantity of sleep this weekend for those in the room that have been a part of Winter Weekend has been um, minimal. And if you start kind of getting checked out or with something I'm saying this morning and you need to just kind of let your mind go somewhere else, just let it go to a place of prayer for the adults and the host homes that have been hosting our students all weekend because I guarantee you they are already having a difficult time keeping their eyelids open. So, um, but we're going to dive in. And I've, I've uh, talked about this before and I like to, you know, kind of reflect, but when I got married, I learned several things. I began to take on some new understanding, and uh, I've, I've talked about this one specifically. When I was in college, I needed one pillow on my bed. There was no need for anything more than that. Now that I'm married, there's a lot more than one pillow on my bed. There's like 15, and there's a point for all of them. For, I, I don't know. I, I can't argue with it. I've learned some other things, though. I've learned how to do laundry differently. You know, there's this thing called sorting the laundry. So guys, you know what I'm talking about. You've learned the same thing. So you don't dry everything. You actually can fold your laundry after it's been clean, too. You know, you don't have to just, if you're like me in college, you would, you would wash it, you would dry it, and then you would set it in a clean pile. And you had your clean pile and you had your dirty pile. And oftentimes the dirty pile was a lot higher than the clean pile. I've learned that there's a lifetime channel. Who knew? I'm not sure that's valuable to understand or know, but it's, it's there, it's real. But I've also learned something else. Over the years, I've learned that there's a difference between the dining table and the kitchen table. You know what I'm talking about. And maybe this is just an American thing, and maybe this isn't a thing in your home, and I would say that you're probably a lot smarter than the rest of us where this is a reality. In my house, there are two tables. We have a dining room, and in the dining room, it is nice. It is decorated perfectly. If you look at the table, every single day of the year, it is perfectly set like it is ready for the most beautiful, elegant banquet we could possibly host in our home. I mean, it's got the centerpieces, it's got the silverware, it's got the plates, it's got the napkins, the walls are decorated, the curtains are hung perfectly. It's a great space. But then we also have the kitchen table. And I decided it would be smart to bring the kitchen table with me this morning to show you this is our kitchen table. This is the table that me and my family, my wife and our two little boys, we sit at regularly for meals. Now, you may not be able to tell from where you're sitting, but there's some, there's some things about this table. Number one, if you looked closely, there's some, there's some spots on the table where there are holes and cracks and crevices, and down in these cracks and crevices and in these holes, there's some filth. It's a little embarrassing to admit that, but there is crumbs, probably um, cereal, uh, there's probably some ramen noodle stuck in there that's been hardened over time, there's glitter for craft time. I mean, there's, it's, it's crazy. My kids have crawled on this table with their bare feet in their underwear. <laughs> I actually made this table, and I'm going to ask that you don't inspect it too much because I know some of you carpenters, you would judge me. You would look underneath here and you would say, man, Wes, that's not finished. It's not, but it's adequate. It gets the job done, okay? So, so don't judge me too much. The other thing that's interesting is um, every seat's a little bit different. You know, as you walk around the table, you kind of know, and if it's, this is probably this way in your house, but as you walk around the table, everybody kind of has their spot, and everybody in the family is a little bit different. My youngest, Cam, he, uh, he is Wreck-It Ralph in our family, and there's a difference in his chair compared to the rest of them, and I don't know if you can see that, but it is worn out, and there are crumbs falling out of this chair, and I'll be honest with you, 
Most of the time when you walk into our kitchen to see this table, it doesn't look like this. There's usually something on it. There's a cup, there's a plate, there's a napkin, there's a toy. The chairs are kind of spread out like this. It's a little bit chaotic and dysfunctional. In fact, Camden's chair is probably like this. It's not even standing upright. That is, that is what it looks like. But this is us. This is reality. The other day, my wife and I were walking through our front door, through past our dining room. My wife stopped and she looked in there and Brandy said this. She goes, I just love our dining room. She goes, I think it's my favorite room in the house. And I said, of course it is, because we're never in it. I mean, I think we've eaten a meal in there maybe ten times in the five and a half years we've lived in our house. I spend a lot more time sitting at that table studying for times like this, getting ready to teach or um, prepare something to speak to students. That's what I use the place for, but that's not real. That's not where we really gather as a family to connect around a meal. And I was thinking about that over the last couple weeks in preparation for this morning, and I started thinking, that's really kind of what the family dynamic looks like. I mean, we all look at the dining table, and it's perfect, it's neat. You want to sit there, you want your dining room to look like that, that's the ideal scenario. I want it to look like that. But then you start a family, you get married, you start having kids, start having friendship, and it looks more like this. This is us. And the reality is, is as you begin to understand the family dynamic, it's busted up, it's chaotic, it's embarrassing. Students, your parents embarrass you sometimes. Parents, your students embarrass you sometimes. I mean, maybe your dad is that dad when you've got all your bros at the house. He goes walking through the living room in his tidy whities You're like, Dad, really? Today? Right, right now? Dad, come on. My kids have embarrassed me. We had some friends over at the house one day from church. We're standing out in the front yard. They're about to leave, and we're, we're having some conversation, closing dialogue to the visit, and all of a sudden I hear my older son, Braden, he's about five, laughing hysterically. This was a few years ago. He's laughing hysterically, belly laughing, and he doesn't do that very often. And I turn around, I look at him, I'm like, what in the world is going on? And then I turn around a little bit more, and I see Camden, and he is mooning Braden in the front yard. And I'm like, Camden, pull up your pants. He pulls his pants up, and he goes, YOLO, and he runs in the house. True story. I look at our friends and I'm like, man, he gets it from his mom. I, I, I don't, I, I, there's, no better, there's no other explanation. She's going to kill me for that. But you know what? It gets more serious than that. Because I can laugh about some of the embarrassing things, but if we really get to the root of some of our family dynamics, it's really dysfunctional. It's really discouraging. There's actually a lot of hurt. There's a lot of hopelessness. Because the family dynamic is shaky. What you don't know about this table, because it's sitting on the carpet, is this table is actually pretty wobbly because I built it, and so it's not real stable. On the tile, it, it, it rocks. You know, our families can be incredibly unstable. And as we've been going through this series, I want us to step in and look at the family dynamics some more, build off of the last couple of weeks, but specifically look at the parent-child relationship. And let's gain some insight and some understanding this morning from what Scripture says that I think is valuable to us, no matter where you are, no matter if you're in the healthiest place your family could possibly be in this season, or whether it's just completely destroyed. And so I want to dive in, and I want to look at Ephesians chapter 6. But before we dive in, as you're turning there, or you're looking onto your Bible app, or maybe you're just looking in your program at the guide. I want to say this, because I want to be sensitive to this. I know 
that for some, maybe many, when you step into a room like this, you step into a church looking for God to speak encouraging things to you, and you begin to hear about family dynamics, you begin to hear about parents and children, that can bring up a lot of hurts. And I just want you to know this morning, I don't step into this time together not aware of that. And I don't completely understand every scenario. I don't understand why every scenario happens the way that it does, why certain families look one way and other families aren't able to look that way. But I know that it hurts. And I'm asking your permission, and I'm asking that you'll go somewhere with us this morning, even if this doesn't completely apply to you, that you would lock in, that you would engage. At the least, you would pray this morning that God would do something. Because here's what I believe. I believe healthy communities come from healthy families. And so I want us to dive in and engage and be intentional in our time this morning. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, and these are new believers. These are new people who have just begun to understand what it looks like to follow Jesus. We've studied a lot of Ephesians in the past several months. Um, Paul spends the first three chapters speaking specifically um, into what a relationship with Jesus looks like and what difference that makes. And then in chapters 4, 5, and 6, he starts to give some practical steps for spiritual growth. So in chapter 6, we see these four verses sandwiched between some other passages about relationships. So we're in a context here talking about relationships, but he specifically begins to talk about parents and children. He wants us to understand this dynamic. It's almost like God is using the relationships as a 24-7 process, a 24-7 example of what it looks, to, looks like to have an even better relationship with Him. And so look what it says in, in, in chapter 6, verse 1. He says this, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And all the parents in the room said, amen to that. <laughs> children, obey your parents, for this is right. Immediately, he begins to kind of paint a picture. And what he's helping us understand is a child's relationship with his parents is a picture of what it looks like to live under the authority of God Himself. Now, there's some weight to that. There's some, there's some gravity to that. Children, this is what it means. Students, teenagers, that what that means is that when you respond to your parents, when you respond with encouraging words, because that happens all the time, right? When you tell them how much you love them, when you lie to them, when you disrespect them, when you disobey them, what you're actually doing is responding to God as well, not just mom and dad. Parents, the flip side of that is, the way that you interact, the way that you parent, what you're doing as you lead and raise your children is you're helping them understand the authority of God and what it looks like to live in a relationship with God Himself. Now, that's, that's, that's big. Look what it says in verse 2. He says, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now, Paul kind of throws it back here. We've got a throwback Thursday verse in this passage on a Sunday, and he says, honor your father and mother. Where does that come from? It actually comes from the Ten Commandments. He's going back to the Old Testament, and he's drawing us, our, our minds back there so that we remember one of the Ten Commandments, the Fifth Commandment, says honor your father and mother, and there's a promise attached to that. And I think it's important, and it solidifies what I just said. The first four commandments actually are about our relationship with God. The first four, it's all about how do we relate to God Himself. And then the last four commandments, 
the last five commandments, are all about the horizontal relationships, the relationships we have with other people in our life, our parents, our brothers, our sisters, our friends, our coworkers, our bosses. But sandwiched in between the five at the end and the, the, the four at the beginning is command number five. And it's almost like it's the transition. We understand our relationship with God. We know that there's relationships with other people, but this particular relationship between parents and children is significant because it helps us understand what it looks like to stay connected with God and to have a relationship with God Himself. You know, it's like, parents, it's like you are the um, training wheels for your children, so to speak. Look what it says in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. It says, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Train up a child. What that means is is that you have been tasked with raising up this human being, this creature, but you're the training wheels as they begin to grow up, they begin to mature, to show them how to ride their bike safely, so to speak preparing them for a season when they're going to be able to take this on their own. They're going to be able to navigate this on their own because you have adequately prepared them for that. There's going to be a day where they're going to say, I don't need the training wheels anymore, Mom. Dad, I don't need the training wheels anymore. I'm good. I think I'm ready. We're training them up. Look what it says back in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4. He says something specific to parents. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in discipline and instruction of the Lord. He's calling us out, and he's saying, hey, if, if the way that you lead, if the way that you discipline, in the way that you punish your children, if it is stirring anger up in them, then it may be time to take a step back and reflect and ask the question, what am I doing wrong? Where's the disconnect? Why is this happening the way that it is? Because it shouldn't be something that stirs up anger. That's what Paul's trying to get us to recognize. Now listen, it doesn't say that you may not be angry, but it says don't stir up anger in your children. What we have to do is we have to control ourselves, and this is pretty much an impossible task. I don't know about you, but it can be for me. Because a lot of times I have a tendency to discipline or lead my children out of inconvenience, out of frustration out of anger, out of selfishness. And Paul is calling us out. And here's what I'm just assuming this morning. I don't think Paul was writing this as an observation of what they were already doing. What Paul is doing in his limited space in the letter to the church at Ephesus is he is making an assumption, he is recognizing that this is a massive struggle for people. And it's a prescription for us to understand what this connection between a parent and a child is supposed to look like. But it's also a prescription for us to grow in our relationship with God as children, as teenagers, and as parents. And so I want us to understand that. I want us to recognize that this morning. Because something happens. Parents, you have a natural tendency to protect and nurture your child. And in the early years, it can be messy. but the dynamic can be a little bit easier, and then as they grow up, something begins to happen. There's a disconnect that begins to to stir up. Teenagers get to that place, and they start to think, you know what? I don't need mom and dad anymore. They have lost their mind. I think their brain has been removed from their headspace, because they begin to navigate life assuming that they know what it takes to live this life the best way. And there's this natural leading 
to kind of disconnect from mom and dad. All of a sudden, there's a tension that's created. Instead of running back to mom and dad for all their needs, for all of their attachment, they actually begin to reject some of that because they're attracted to their peers, they're attracted to culture, they're attracted to the world. And in that tension, we can find disconnects. In that tension, we can find stress and anxiety. In that tension, we can actually experience destruction because we don't know how to handle it sometimes. I would say most of the time, we don't know how to handle it. Here's what it looks like. Here's how it starts. Maybe, maybe this is a conversation or a dialogue, and let's just say it probably wasn't a face-to-face conversation, probably more of a texting conversation, because that's what we do now. Teenagers have phones, but really it's just an app on a device. They don't ever talk on the phone. It's all about texting and social media. And so you text your child because he or she has been gone all weekend. You, hadn't, you didn't see them Friday, you didn't see them all day Saturday, Sunday is going along, you still hadn't seen them a whole lot, they, they, they slept at your house, but that's really it. And so about two, three o'clock this afternoon, you're like, hey, um, what time are you going to be home? And then you wait, because they never respond right away, right? And we just wait, keep checking your phone, and then all of a sudden you see the little dots start moving. And you're like, oh, good, she's typing back. He's responding. What's he going to say? And he says, uh, can I stay out another two, three, four hours? And in that moment, you start to feel that stress, that anxiety, that tension. Because as a parent, you're like, why doesn't he want to come home? Why doesn't she want to be here? And so you respond, no, you need to come home now. And what do they do? They ask, why? What are we going to do at home? And you respond with, we're going to have some family time. We're going to hang out together. And then they respond with, well, that sounds lame. That sounds boring. I'd have more fun with my friends. And there's this disconnect that begins to happen. You know, when they're younger, they talk to us all the time. They tell us their closest thoughts. They tell us their most important feelings. We know everything going on in their life, and then all of a sudden, they start to kind of close off some of those thoughts. They become more protective of those thoughts. And all of a sudden, as parents, we begin to feel like we're losing access into the life of our children. We begin to think as if they're still younger, even though they're growing up. And even though we want them to grow up to be the best, most adequate adults possible, we still see them as these young children who need us for their every need. They're not thinking that way, though. They're thinking, I'm ready to be an adult. And that tension creeps in. And we started talking about this a little bit. We heard a lot about this last week, but we respond in the same ways that we talked about between a husband and a wife or, or even in friendships. But when we find this distress and the distress is real, we begin to kind of do these dances. There's these, the, these conversations that we begin to try to have, and, and it's the, the blame boogie where the, 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 the person is trying, the two people, the two individuals are trying to cast the blame. They're trying to find who's at fault. And so there's this anxiety towards each other. Or maybe there's the one that's called the protest polka. One person is is being anxious. They want to find a response in the situation, and the other one just wants to avoid the conversation, avoid the situation altogether, and you see this disconnect begin to happen. Or there's this third one we talked about. It's called the withdrawal waltz, where neither individual desires to come up with a solution. Neither individual desires to try to figure out what's going on and both just live this life of avoidance. And there's this chasm that's created. And the longer that it goes on, the more destructive it becomes and, and the more disconnected parents and students 
become in their lives. The truth is, students especially, we were created to need our parents. We were created to need them, especially in times of distress, even though we start to find attachment in other things beyond our family. And parents, we begin to recognize this, and I want us to look at some very practical steps that I think we can take this morning. In the time we have remaining, I want us to think and process and be intentional with how we can respond. You know, this week we've been talking, this weekend we've been talking with students, and we've been kind of focused on this whole idea of coming to the table. There's an invitation on the table to take a seat at the table, and maybe this represents your family dynamic. Maybe this is where you kind of see your family. Maybe for some of you, it, this is best case scenario. Maybe for some, you've got to take away some chairs because some have just completely disconnected. And I want to give us some things that we can potentially do to be intentional in reestablishing that connection with us and our kids, no matter what the age is. Help us understand that there is still a seat at the table. We talked about this on Friday night with our students, this whole idea that when we get into middle school, everything changes because up to that point, we go to lunch and we're in a line, single file, we know who we're going to sit by, we know, we know what table we have to sit at, but then we get to middle school and everything changes because all of a sudden you have a choice and anxiety creeps in. There is seat stress in that moment. And you walk into that cafeteria as a middle school or a high school student on that first day of school, and you are stressed out because as you get your food tray, you begin to look around, you begin to think, man, where am I going to sit? Who's in here that I know? Who's going to invite me to their table? And so you start looking around, and you're like, man, I, I really want to sit there, but I'm not sure they're going to accept me. Um, I don't want to sit there because there's just no way they're going to accept me. I don't want to sit there because I don't want to be like them. Where are my friends? Where am I going to sit? What am I going to do? And there's this stressful moment. But how different is it in those moments? when you have a friend who's already there and they've saved a seat for you. I mean, what does that communicate? That communicates something. It communicates that there's a place for you, that I care about you. This is a place of security. It's a game changer. And it's exactly what the family dynamic was created for. It's what it was supposed to do. It was supposed to be a place that was safe, that was secure a foundation of love and acceptance, to be able to take a seat with confidence. And so my challenge for us this morning is that we would take that next step, that we would simply take a seat at the table. Take a seat at the table. You know, it's interesting, as you look through Scripture, incredible things happen around the table or around a meal. And so just a really practical thing I'm going to kind of challenge you to do this week is just to simply, if possible, sit down at the table together as a family. Whatever the family dynamic is, just come to the table together. And I know that's a challenge. I mean, we live in 2019, we are in a tech-crazed a tech culture. We are distracted by TVs, by cell phones, by video games. I mean, it is crazy. And sometimes we come around the table, but we still don't connect because we're so distracted. And the challenge is just to simply connect this week. Maybe it's not at dinner time. Maybe it's, in the, it's at breakfast in the morning. You're like, Wes, our schedule is packed. We, we don't have time in the evenings. The mornings are terrible. I don't have time to cook breakfast. Everybody grab a Pop-Tart and sit around the table for 10 minutes and have some time together. But as you look through Scripture, several things happen around the table. The first thing is this. The table is a place for connection. It's a place where people have conversation. It's a place where people come together to recognize the value in each other. You see this all through Scripture. 
people gathering around a meal. Jesus did this with his closest followers. He did it with those that weren't even super close to him, but he recognized their needs, and so he would provide a meal for them. In Matthew chapter 26, you see a story where Jesus is about to go to the cross, and he's sharing some of the most important truth about himself with his closest followers. And did you know, even in that moment, his closest followers, his closest friends didn't fully understand him in that moment, but he connected with them anyways. And I wonder what it would look like for us this week to do that, to do that with our children. You know, it's interesting. I think that most parents and most of us in the room today would say, I want my child, I want my teenager to grow up to be an adequate, um, high self-esteem, self-sufficient, independent person. I want them to be successful. But we struggle when they begin to take those steps towards being that way. And the, 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 the tension can sometimes create this idea that I'm not going to adequately respond anymore. But I want us to live in that tension, and I want us to continue to create a space to be responsive in those relationships, even when they begin to move off and they begin to look beyond the family realm. It's healthy because they're always going to need a place to come back and connect. The table is a place for connection. The second thing it is, is it's a place for healing. The table is a place for healing. You know, I understand that as I've been talking this morning that some of the dynamics represented in this room are significant, and the idea of just simply coming to the table may not be enough. And I realize that, and I understand that, but I think there's something about this that some of us can step into to begin to find healing, to find restoration. One of my favorite stories in the New Testament is in John chapter 21. Paul and all the disciples have been fishing all night. Jesus has gone to the cross. He has given his life. He has come back to, um, come back to life from the dead, and he's showing himself to his closest followers. And so they fish all night, and they get up in the morning. They're, they're on the boat, on the water, and they see Jesus walking on the beach. And Peter, in that moment, loses his mind. He just jumps out of the boat, and he starts to swim to the beach to get to Jesus as fast as he can. As he gets to the shore, Jesus is preparing breakfast for the disciples, for Peter. And as soon as Peter gets there, he immediately recognizes a smell. It's a familiar smell. It's the smell of fire. And the word used in the story is the exact same word that described the fire that Peter was standing next to when he denied Jesus three times. I mean, can we talk about a disconnect? to say that you didn't know someone three times in that person's most critical moment in life, Peter steps onto the beach and immediately he's overwhelmed with shame. But what's interesting is Jesus is preparing this breakfast. It wasn't about feeding his disciples. It's not that they were starving to death. What it was is it was a time for Jesus to say, hey, let's restore what was broken. Let's heal what's been wronged. And I know that that's a challenge, and maybe this morning this is just a shot in the arm to kind of get us started in the right direction. And I know for many, the damage and the disconnect is so strong and so severe that nothing I'm probably going to say this morning is going to completely address the issue. And I want to challenge you, I want to push you. Maybe the best step you can take today is to sign up in the lobby for the Parent and Children Connection Workshop that's coming up the first weekend in March. That might be the most important thing you do today. It might be the most important thing you've done in years. 
to begin to understand what is it going to take to restore, to heal what's broken. Students, listen. If we go back to what it said in Ephesians, it says, honor your father and mother. You know, it says obey in the Lord, but then it says honor. There's going to be a season where your obedience begins to get smaller and smaller and smaller as you grow up, but your honor for your mom and dad never goes away. It doesn't mean that there's a deliberate disobedience. It means that you continue to honor. And it doesn't say honor if they're great. It doesn't say honor if they're perfect. It doesn't say honor if they treated you the best way they're supposed to treat you as a parent. It just simply says honor. Because it's not so much about the relationship you have with your mom and dad, it's about the relationship you have with God. And one of the ways you honor God is by honoring your mom and dad. So how can you do that this week? Maybe God wants to use you students to impact the life of your mom, or your dad, for you to lead out in this, and the way you do that is by honoring them. Maybe you sit down this week, maybe you sit down this afternoon, before you take your fat nap because you've been up all weekend, and you just simply write a letter to mom, write a letter to dad and say, mom, dad, I love you, and then just focus on everything they've done for you. And you may sit there and think, Wes, you don't know my mom and dad, you don't know what they haven't done for me. Just focus on what they have done that's valuable in your life. You can't choose your parents, but you can choose the relationship you have with your parents. It's one of the ways that we can begin the healing process, and sometimes it happens as we come around the table, as we come around a meal together. We see this throughout Scripture. The last thing is this. The table and a seat at the table is a place for perspective. You know, as we've been looking at this idea of sitting down at the table, we've been focused on a story out of Luke chapter 14. And if you have time, you can write this down in your notes, you can go read the story, but it's a parable that Jesus tells where he's inviting us to the table. But he's not inviting us to the table for a meal. He's not inviting us to the table to take care of our physical hunger or our thirst. He's inviting us to the table and he's using it as a representation of a relationship with him. To step into a relationship with Jesus, say, Jesus, here's my life. I want to walk with you. I want to experience you. Here's my life. Make it yours. And that's the invitation the students have been focused on this week, is stepping in to this relationship, saying yes to the invitation to the table and taking a seat. And here's what's interesting. As I was preparing for this message and trying to figure out how to land this plane, I started thinking back to Ephesians. And I started thinking about what Paul was writing to the church at Ephesus, but reflecting back on what he said before he gave them any practical steps on how to live this out. He was helping us understand the reality of what it looks like to have a relationship with Jesus. Look what it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. This is right after he's explained to us what life looks like apart from Christ. And in this verse, he says, in the midst of our deadness, us being dead, apart, separated from God himself, he says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and then check this out, and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Raised up and seated where? Not where we are, but with him in heavenly places. When we take a seat at the table, when we respond to the invitation to walk in a relationship with Jesus himself, what he does is he gives us a seat. He gives us a different place to take a view from. Our perspective changes. When we take a seat, it changes our perspective. We get a new perspective. Let me help illustrate it like this. Um, is Jackson sitting down here? Where's Jackson at? Jackson, come up here, man. 
you don't have to go to the steps. You're young and nimble, so just jump up here. There you go. Jackson, let me ask you a couple questions, because I, I want to kind of help clarify this for us to know what we're talking about this morning. Um, have you ever been bored in church? Definitely. All right, this is starting off strong. Um, have you ever been bored when I'm teaching? Yes. Jackson, I appreciate you being up here, man. You can go have a seat, you know? I think we're done. I think we're done. I'm just kidding. Um, here's, here's what I want you to know. Listen. I want you to think about this, because when you walked in the room this morning, you knew you were going to take a seat down here somewhere, and that, that basically um, indicated how you were going to respond, how you were going to navigate your time in this room. Now you're on the stage, and it's different, because when you come on the stage like this, you think a little bit differently about what's going to happen in this room. I mean, you're, how are you feeling right now? There's a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's definitely a lot of people. You know what's interesting? You, you want to know what's true? <laughs> Jackson, I've never been bored standing here. Never. I've never been bored. I also do some things differently when I'm coming up on the stage that you didn't do when you walked in the room. I always check my teeth to make sure there's nothing in my teeth. You're self-conscious right now, aren't you? You're like, oh dang, I didn't check my teeth. And I always check my fly, because that's, that's just awkward. You probably didn't do either one of those things when you walked in. But you know what else? <laughs> You know what else? There's some other reasons why I'm not bored, because I look out here at all these people that are making your palms sweat right now, and I feel a, <laughs> I feel a burden. Yeah, it's, it's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. I feel a burden, but I also feel excitement because I look and I see faces. I see people. I see light bulbs coming on. People beginning to understand who Jesus is. I also see, you know, Harold sometimes taking a fat nap up in that section. And I don't, man, if there's a Harold sitting up there, I just totally picked that name out of nowhere, and hopefully that's not you and you're not taking a nap. I'm not calling you out. But when I see that, I feel a responsibility. I feel a burden. And it doesn't ever get boring right here. It can get boring down there sometimes, but it's all about our perspective. Are you bored right now? No. No. I, I didn't think so. Jackson, thanks for uh, being a good sport. Y'all give Jackson a hand. Here's what I think Paul wants us to understand in this passage. As we step into a relationship with Jesus, we begin to see things differently. He changes the way we see. We begin to see things as He sees things. He says, seated with Him in the heavenly realms. We take the seat and we begin to see differently. When we look in the mirror, we begin to see ourselves differently. We begin to have confidence in who we are. We begin to understand our worth. We know our value because how do you know the value of something? by the price someone was willing to pay, and Jesus paid His life so that my life would have weight, so that I would have worth. It changes the way I see other people. It changes the way we look at the opposite sex. It changes the way we look at our spouse. It changes the way we see our children. It changes the way we see our parents. We begin to see with a new perspective. It changes us. I think the most important thing we could do this morning is to simply take a seat at the table. And I'm not talking about just a table around, around the table with your family this week, but to say yes to the invitation to take a seat with Jesus and say, Jesus, here's my life. I want to walk with you. I want to understand you. I want to experience you. I want to see things like you see them. And then as you change the way I see, as you open my eyes to who you are and who you've called me to be, would it impact every relationship in my life?
I know that a morning like this can be incredibly overwhelming for some. And I was sitting for a few days thinking about this. How do we land this plane? How do we, how do we adequately close a message like this? And I honestly was struggling. I was like, man, I don't know. I'm not that smart. I, I'm, I'm going to sit in front of all these people, and I just don't know how I'm going to be able to do this in an adequate way. And it dawned on me, because I'm not adequate. You're not adequate. It's an impossible task to reestablish the connection the way that it was ultimately designed to do. So what do I do in my life when it's impossible? I pray and I worship. And so I think that's the adequate response for this morning, is that we would pray and that we would worship. Because when we pray, we're saying, God, I can't do this on my own. It's impossible. So I'm calling on you because I see that you see things more clearly than I see them. So do what only you can do. And when I worship, I begin to open my eyes to who he is, and I begin to express to him my need for him, my gratitude for him, how thankful I am to him. And so this morning, I want to ask Mark to come back up and just lead us in a time of prayer, to pray over us, and then spend a few moments worshiping and declaring how grateful we are and how dependent we are on God.